Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good, good. Hey, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 3. We're going to be in Acts 3 and 4 this morning. Thank you guys for um, making it out on a, a gloomy Sunday morning. We've had a lot of sun, um, so we can handle some rain, right? We're Michiganders. We're tough. Um, we, we, can, we can deal with it. Thank you for getting to church. Um, we are in the fourth week of a series that I'm just so thrilled about, and, and it's a Christian worldview series. And we are, this fall, what we're doing is, is we're trying to anchor ourselves around what are the majors? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about ourselves? Last week we talked, what do we believe about sin? And I'm really excited about this week because we're gonna talk about salvation this week. And I think two of the most fundamental questions you will ever ask yourself, maybe the most important question you ever will need to wrestle with is this, is how am I saved? right? Foundational to the message of Christianity, foundational to the gospel is this idea of salvation. And we're going to look at that this morning. And then we're going to deal with another question that's different, but just as important. And it's this, it's how do I know that I'm saved, right? There's a difference between how am I saved and how can I know if I'm saved? And if you're like me, or, or if you have, um, are like the people that I have talked to hundreds of times in the history of doing ministry at this church, I think this is a question that we wrestle with and can sometimes doubt and be fearful of. Like, how do I know that I actually have this thing called the Holy Spirit? How do I know that I have true faith in Jesus? How do I know that my salvation is real? I... Um, was a church rat growing up. My folks were super involved um, in church ever since as early as I could remember. And I remember when I was in junior high and high school, there was like this constant fear where it was like, I'm going to church, I, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, but I still fall short all the time. And maybe like I've missed the message somehow, maybe I'm not actually saved. It was a, a huge area of doubt and fear in my life that shaped much of my childhood. And the interesting thing is, is I have these conversations with my kids now. Every once in a while, I'll, you know, put the girls to bed, their bedtime's like at eight. And all of a sudden at 8.30, they'll just be standing at the top of the stairs, which is really creepy because they don't say anything. They just stand. And I look up and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's terrifying. There's two of you. It's like, you know, twins get creepy at night. Like there's <laughs> ghost, you know, ghost things. Um, I don't know why I said that. I love them dearly. But they'll come down at 8.30 and they'll be like, you know, um, dad, can we talk to you? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, I'm just, I'm just nervous because like I wanna love Jesus and I wanna follow him, but I still like, sometimes I have thoughts that are mean or unkind. And I'm just like, how do I know I'm saved? And I'm trying to figure out, are you just trying to stay up an extra hour later and have this conversation? Is this real? What's going on? But I think this is something that we wrestle with. And church, here's what I would say. Um, there's a lot of things that we can be unsure about in life, right? Like I'm unsure if the Detroit Lions will ever win another football game. There's no way to know. I can't be sure, right? But there's certain things we have to be sure on. And at the very top of that list is the issue of where do we stand before a holy and living God? If God forbid this afternoon, Joel, you were to stand before the Lord, how would that conversation go? Do you know? Like This is something we have to be certain of, and we're gonna dive into that today. I think it's gonna be really encouraging for your hearts this morning. So do me a favor. If you have your Bible, look at Acts 3. Just a little background to get us to where we need to be in Acts. Um, you remember Jesus died on the cross. 
He rose from the dead three days later, hung out with his disciples for a little bit, then ascended into heaven. And before he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, he's like, don't do anything before the Holy Spirit comes. I'm gonna send you my spirit. You morons will mess it up if you try to do it on your own. Just hang out and wait. Well, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and it comes in tongues of fire and they start speaking different languages. And Peter preaches a message from a rooftop in Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost and 3,000 Jewish people get saved in one day. And Acts 3 is kind of what happens next after that. It says this, look at Acts 3, starting at verse 1. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer and at the ninth hour, and a man that was lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So Peter and John, they're kind of the two leaders of the disciples. They're going into the temple to worship. And it says that there's a man who, who is at the gate who is lame from birth. Now just a reminder, lame in the Bible means you can't walk. It doesn't mean not cool, Right. There's some of you looking at me like, Cal, I think you've been lame from birth. You know, one, that's not very nice. Two, that's not what this passage is talking about. This is talking about that there was something degeneratively wrong with his legs. And, and from what we can understand from the text, probably his feet and ankles. He couldn't walk, couldn't provide for himself. So whoever loved him in his life, whether that be family or friends, they just drop him off at the gate and he's got to beg for a living. And he's there every day. All right, look at verse three. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, so this is what this guy does, he asks to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, and as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. All right, so there's this amazing thing that happens that this guy's asking for money and Peter and John are like, hey, look at us. And he's thinking he's gonna get some money. And they're like, I have no money for you. But, but in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And a miracle happens in this man's body and he can get up and walk. And here's what's really cool, something that I want you to understand. When Jesus was ministering here on earth, why did he do miracles? He did it because he loved people. He, he, he did it because he cared for people. But the primary reason he did miracles was to validate his teaching. So, so what would happen is, is Jesus would go into a village and he'd be like, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. I'm coming here to, to pay for the sin of the world. I am the fulfillment to all of the Old Testament prophecies. Like I am the one you should put your faith in. And then guess what he would do? He would do things that only God could do to validate what he was saying. Right When you say you're the son of God and all of a sudden you start casting out demons and raising people from the dead and giving sight to the blind, it's like, okay, you are who you say you are because you're doing things that only God could do. So here's what's cool. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit his helper. And he says, I'm gonna give you my helper. He says that to the disciples. So what did the disciples do? They receive the Holy Spirit. They preach about Jesus. And then they do miracles that validate the message they were preaching. I just love how the Holy Spirit is running the same gameplay as Jesus because the Holy Spirit always elevates Jesus in this world and in our lives. But the same thing that Jesus did, the same rhythm of ministry is now happening for the disciples. Look at verse eight. It says, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Like the dude's pumped, right? Reasonably so. And all of the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. 
All right, so here's the crazy thing about this miracle. It created a stir because everyone knew who this guy was. When you routinely go to the temple and there's the same dude there who can't walk, who's asking for money, right? right? You don't run a scam for your entire life pretending not to walk and one day decide you can walk. Like they knew this, who this guy was. They knew a miracle had happened. And like the temple is stirred up. And so what happens is if you were to read the rest of Peter 3 or Acts 3, Peter preaches a message and he is calling people to salvation in Christ. Another few thousand people come to know the Lord and the religious leaders are like, we don't know what to do. They're, they're frustrated. They want to get rid of these guys. So they just throw them in prison. And Peter and John spend the night in prison for preaching the gospel. And where it picks up in Acts 4 is the next day. So look at Acts 4 verse 5. It says, in the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered uh, together in Jerusalem and with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired by what power or by what name do you do this? Okay, really quick. Do you guys recognize the name Annas and Caiaphas from anywhere else? Right, they were the high priests who led the trial of Jesus. Because I want you to see what's happening here. Peter and John are going through the very same trial that Jesus went through. They're thrown in prison. They're brought before the high priest and their family. And it says that they've set them in the midst. So I want you to picture Peter and John are in the middle. These, these religious leaders have surrounded them. They're pressing in on them. And they say, by what name or power are you doing this? Because they want them to admit to blasphemy. They're trying to get them to commit a capital offense so that they can be killed just like Jesus. But in Jesus's trial, Jesus remained silent so he could go to the cross. Peter decides to speak. Look at verse eight. It says, and Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God and who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved." And it's in that message and it's in that passage right here that we will see both how do we become saved and how can we know that we are saved. And so let's deal with the first question, how am I saved? Look at verse 10. It says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This might be the clearest explanation of salvation in all of scripture. And here's how we become saved. It's very, very simple. We see it right from the text. We need to, by faith, believe that one, Jesus was who he said he was, and that two, Jesus did what the Bible says he did. We need to have faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so it's this idea that we need to believe by faith that Jesus was and is the eternal son of God 
that he was present from eternity, that he was involved in creation, that he entered our world becoming fully God, fully man. He fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. He he proclaimed the kingdom of heaven. He lived a perfect sinless life and died a death paying the penalty for our sin, reconciling us to God. When you believe that by faith, you receive the Holy Spirit and you are saved. We are saved by faith in who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And in church, here's what I would say. That is both beautifully simple and it has massive implications for our lives and world. What I wanna do is I wanna talk about three implications of salvation. Here's the first. Um, the first is that Christianity is exclusive in its message. Christianity, by definition, is exclusive in its message. It's right there in the text. Look at verse 12. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right, right. He's saying, listen, there's no other way. You have Jesus or you have no relationship with God. That's it. That's your two choices. And if you remember, right, it's the exclusiveness of Christianity which makes Christianity so offensive. Christianity is the kid who does not play nice in the sandbox with all the other kids. It has to be faith in Jesus or nothing. And one of the things that Christianity demands, a Christian worldview demands, is that we reject every other salvation message in our culture and in the world. And secular humanism, now I want you to think about this. We talked about secular humanism last week. Remember, it's this idea that there is no God, there is no spiritual life, there is no eternity. All we have is ourselves. We're the highest authority. All right, secular humanism doesn't believe that relationship with God is a real thing. So, So here's what humanism's view of religion is. If it's good for you, and if it makes you a better person, and, 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 you know, Nate, like, if, if you want to do that, like, I'm cool with it, but I don't really believe it's real. So just do it in a way where, like, you're not judging me at all. But, like, can we just do it in a way where we get along and, and we can, can hang out and no one gets each other mad? Like, the fact that there's wars over religion or, or people do things in the name of religion, it's all nonsense. Like, you can believe your thing, but just leave it as your thing. And us as Christians, we're like, nope, can't do that, Right? Because Jesus said it himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Peter says it here, there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. We're not on one lane of a highway of many lanes that's all going the same direction. There is one hope for salvation of the world and his name is Jesus Christ, amen? Okay, here's the second thing, but you need to understand that's what's going to put us at odds with our culture. Here's the second implication. It's that Christianity is unique in its solution. Look at verse nine. It says, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means has this man been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. Okay, so here's the question. Who does Peter give credit for healing this man? He gives it to Jesus, right? 
He doesn't say, I healed this man by the power of Jesus. He doesn't say this crippled man was really, really religious and he tried hard and he had, his heart was in a good place, so God healed him. He said, no, 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 this happened because Jesus made it happen. No one else gets any credit. You see, Christianity is unique in its solution because our salvation is a gift we receive from Jesus. It's all about the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. It's not about how righteous or how good or how much work we have done to make ourselves right before God. Christianity levels the playing field, right? We've talked about this before. You see, Christianity technically isn't even a religion because religion is all, how do I make myself presentable before God? What practices do I have to do? What sacrifices do I have to make? What, what things do I have to do to make myself clean? Or maybe in our culture, it's more of the idea of moralism. It's this idea of um, if I do more good things than bad things, then when I get before my creator, I'll get into heaven because I'm a good person. I'm not a bad person. So I'm comparing myself against all of you to make sure that I am good enough. Christianity is like, no, it's not about our goodness. It's about what Christ has done and in thinking about this, I had a light bulb moment this week. Do you remember the passage we looked at last week talking about sin, Jeremiah 17? It said this, "'Cursed is the man who trusts in man "'and who makes his flesh his strength, "'whose heart turns away from the Lord.'" And remember I said like, isn't it amazing that 3000 years ago, God nails secular humanism? Like, isn't that secular humanism perfectly defined? It's all about us. We're the highest authority. What we decide goes for our life, for our culture, for our sexuality. No one can tell us to do. It's all about us. Well, if you think about it, isn't a religion that says we've got to clean ourselves up and make ourselves right before God, isn't it just the other side of the same coin? It's still putting our trust in man. It's still putting faith in our own efforts. And that's why Christianity is at odds with every other, with every other religion because it's like, no, it's not about us. Look here. Christianity demands that you remove yourself from the center of the story, that it's all about Jesus. It's why we come here and we gather together and we don't sing songs about how great we are. We sing songs about how great Jesus is because he is the star. It is because of him that we have been saved. Christianity is unique in its solution. And then here's the, the third thing we see. It's that Christianity demands more than intellectual assent. Christianity demands more than intellectual assent. It's not just about what you know. Look at verse 10. It says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. Now, if you like taking notes in your Bible, do me a favor, underline or highlight that word well, the last word of that passage. Because um, in the, the, the Greek, that word can also be translated as whole. So, so what Peter is saying is, is, listen, because of Jesus Christ, this man has not only been healed physically, but he has changed his heart. He's talking about a wholeness of the healing of this man, that what happened wasn't just a physical healing, but there was a spiritual healing. And this man is fundamentally different than who he was before he met Jesus, right? And I've said this before, Jesus cannot be our savior if he's not our Lord, we will not stand before God someday and give a theology exam. Like when we stand before the Lord, it's not gonna be, all right, I've got my Scantron sheet, right? Get your number two pencils out and you gotta answer the right questions about what you believe. It's like, no, no, your life is going to show what you believed very, very clearly. 
Did you love Jesus? Were you surrendered to him? Did you exist to glorify him? Did you live a life that was sold out that Jesus Christ was the savior of the universe? Or did you not? It's not just an intellectual exercise. Okay, so let's move on to the second fundamental question. And I think this one's even more pertinent for a lot of us. It's this, how can I know that I'm saved? And I think, again, in many ways, this is something a lot of Christians wrestle with. Maybe I'll just do this. Do me a favor. If you've ever, you know, have been a Christian for a while or for a long time, or maybe you're new, but you've wrestled with doubt of wondering, am I truly saved? If you've wrestled with that, can you just raise your hand and let me see? All right, raise them up high. If that's been you, look, look, see, look around. You're in the majority, and the ones that aren't raising their hands, they're most likely lying. So if that's you, you can check out my sermon from last week, and I'll set you straight. That one was on sin. Um, That was a joke. Um, But this is something we all deal with. And and what we see in this passage, I think is so cool, is three evidences of a genuine salvation. Here's the first thing we see. Um, I can know that I'm saved when my faith is resilient. When my faith is resilient. One of the things I love about this story is that when the heat is turned up on Peter and John, they don't wilt. They hang in there. They have to spend the night in jail. Think about this. They're going through the same trial that Jesus did. How'd that end for Jesus? He was crucified. Now they get thrown in jail. They're going through the same trial and they're asked, by what name do you, do you say this? You see, we have the whole story. They didn't. I am sure Peter was convinced in this moment. I'm going to say what I'm going to say and then they're gonna kill me. He thinks he is on the path to the same death that Jesus did. But he says, Jesus is the one who saved him. He rose from the dead. You crucified him. There is no other name by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ. He is all in when it gets difficult. Their faith passed the test of adversity. But I think about it. It's easy to follow Jesus when you preach a message from a rooftop and 3,000 people get saved. That's fun. It's easy to follow Jesus when you look at a guy and say, get up and walk and a miracle happens and he's healed. That, that's fun, that's easy. It's an altogether different animal when you're surrounded by adversaries who are looking to kill you and you've got to stand for your faith. Um, before I was a pastor here for a couple of years, I was a youth pastor in Orlando right after Mary and I got married. And it was really... Um, interesting. We were at a small church. It was a new church plan. It wasn't like here at all. There was only about 150 people in the whole church. And this guy started coming to our church. And he was one of those guys that when he entered the room, everyone knew who he was. He, he, he was big. He was gregarious. He was loud. He was super excited, super energetic. You know, he, he called himself Papa Joe, right? Like that's just who he was. And, and um, again, when you're at a smaller church, you kind of know everyone, but he, his family started coming. They plugged in as small group leaders, were serving. Just, just a really, really fun guy in the church. Um, but if you remember um, back in 2008 and 2009, um, the economy was going through a, a really difficult time. Some of you are old enough to remember kind of how shaky the stock market was and the economy was. And one of the things that was getting decimated in that time was the real estate market. And uh, there was no other city in all of the country that was more devastated in, as far as the real estate market goes than Orlando. And this guy's whole business was real estate. So he was getting creamed. And then I remember he walked into church one day and he was loud and and, and boisterous, but he wasn't happy. And he started cursing out God, 
cursing out Jesus, saying words and things about him that if I said from this pulpit would get me fired. I hate God. I hate Jesus. I hate this church. I hate you pastors. Because when the heat rose for him financially, what it revealed was that's where his hope ultimately was. His test didn't pass the faith. He left, never saw from him again. And I just want to compare that with a guy that... um, I met here or talked with here about a month ago. My first week back from sabbatical, I was literally walking into my first Saturday night service and one of the parking lot attendants said hi to me. And we just talked for a little bit, talked about summer and um, just made some small talk. And then after the service, he came up to me and he goes, you know, Cal, I don't know if you know this or not because I know you were gone this summer, but over the summer, my wife passed away. And I'm just like, oh man, I didn't know that. I'm so sorry to hear that. And he goes, you know what? I don't know how people get through things like this without the Lord. And God has been so good. He's been faithful. He showed up. And it's like, wow, there's a man who is passing a season of adversity and their faith is resilient. And I look at people in this church and I'm like, man, I know things that you've gone through, Greg. And I know things that that have happened in your life. And I've seen a love for Jesus pass the test of time and adversity when there's resiliency to our faith. We can be confident that the salvation is real. And by the way, can I just say this too? I think this should impact how we think about our children. Um, For those of you who have children, I want to ask you this question. What's the goal of yours in raising your kids? Are you trying to raise nice kids, good kids, and successful kids? Or kids who know how to love and trust Jesus in the different seasons and adversities that are coming at them? Because that's going to change how you parent them. Do you talk to your kids about how God is faithful to you in the rough areas of your life? Do you model a consistent love and joy in the Lord even when things aren't that great? I wanna prop up our youth ministries here and 20s ministry um, for a moment. I, when I got back into the office from being out this summer, I sat with Alec, uh, Adam, and uh, Jake, who is our um, high school, junior high, and 20s pastors. And I just, we had a meeting, we had a lunch, and I'm like, guys, what's your goal? Like at the end of the day, what are you striving for in your ministries? And all of them to a T said, you know what? We want to see young people who love the Lord genuinely and their faith thrives, whether they stay here or whether they go other places. We want to see people whose hearts are on fire for the Lord, that what God is doing in their heart is real and they are confident and secure in their faith and can thrive as they enter whatever that next season of life is. Like these are young guys who love the Lord, who I would want my kids under their ministry leadership. And what I would say is, is after being a youth pastor for eight years, the biggest blessing of youth ministry is not the packed out room. It's not the fun event. It's not getting kids to eat gross food. It's not even like getting a bunch of kids to raise their hand and accept Jesus as their savior at camp. The best part is, is when like eight years later, I see one of my former high school students and they're walking with the Lord and they love Jesus, and their families are are, are loving the Lord, and this is a real thing that is passing the test of seasons of life and adversity. It has to be resilient. All right, here's the next one. Um, My faith produces visible transformation. An evidence of, of salvation is my faith produces visible transformation. One of my favorite parts of the story is the visible transformation in Peter's life. Like, remember how Peter did when Jesus went through this exact same trial that that, that Peter's going through now, right? Peter denied him. 
He got scared. He bailed. He ran away. He's like, I'm out. I, I don't know Jesus. I want nothing to do with him. He failed Jesus at the most critical moment. And yet you see here, Peter's a changed person. Fear is replaced with faith. Cowardice is replaced with confidence. You are seeing the spirit of God transform the heart of Peter. Jesus in John 15, five says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you are connected to me, if you have relationship with me, you are going to produce visible fruits of transformation. The fruit of the spirit will be visible in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things will be happening. And if they're not, that, that means there's very real reason to worry that you're not connected to the vine who is Jesus. All right, church, give me your eyes. In fact, I'm gonna do something I don't think I've ever asked you to do. Can you like physically just lean in a little bit? I really want you locked in with me right now. Sit up, lean in, lean in. I wanna be so clear with you right now. The transformation that the Holy Spirit does, it's either happening in your life or it's not. It's that simple. It's one or the other. You are either saved and being transformed from one degree of glory to another that God is changing and transforming your heart or he's not. All right, you guys can lean back. I know some of you are like panicked right now. You're like, come on, man. Don't give me these nice seats and have me sit forward. How dare you? Um, Salvation is a heart transplant. And listen, we're not always gonna be perfect. We're always gonna battle with sin. We're, we're never going to walk perfectly this side of eternity. But if there is not a sincere desire to glorify the Lord, to submit to Jesus as Lord of your life, to honor him with your life, to surrender to him as Lord, because you believe by faith that he is who he said he is and he did what he said he would do. And that by definition, that demands our entire life. If there's not a sincere desire or transformation, if your life is not producing fruit of obedience, you have very real reason to worry that you don't know the Lord if there's no desire for you to truly repent and own your sin, if you can't look back on your life and say, man, by God's grace, I am gaining victory in these areas of my life, there is reason to worry. Which by the way, because that's the case, can, can we think about this for a second? I think one of the things we as Christians aren't very good at that we need to be really good at is celebrating the wins. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I think, okay, raise your hand if you're like me. When you think about your heart or your faith or your walk with the Lord, does your mind tend to go to, man, all of the things you could grow in and be better at? Who, who's like me with that? Okay, a bunch of you are, right? It's like, oh man, here's where I'm weak. Oh man, here's where I messed up this week. Here's where I still need to grow. Here's where my faith is weak. And here's the thing, if we only ever think about those things and we don't look back and remember and celebrate what God has done in our lives, our walk with the Lord is gonna get really depressing really, really quickly. We need to get good at celebrating the transformation that God has done in our lives. Uh, this past weekend, Bo had his first ever travel soccer tournament in, in Detroit. So Mary was with him, I had the other kids. And the way the tournament went was um, they made it all the way to the finals. They won their first three games. Bo played incredible. I think he scored like eight goals in three games, had an incredible tournament, got to the finals and he lost. 
And so um, after the members meeting at the Grand Haven campus, I came home about the same time he was getting home from the tournament and Bo's like head was down. And I'm like, Bo, how was the tournament? And the first thing he said was, I didn't play very good in the finals and we lost. Like his heart quickly went to the failure. And I was like, no, but you had an incredible weekend. You, you scored eight goals. You, your team won the first three games. Look, you got a trophy. I know it says runner up, but it's still a trophy. Like, like it was a incredible first tournament experience. And it was like, oh yeah, it was fun. It, it was good. But our hearts are so quick to go to the failure. So, so listen, one of the things that Christian relationships have to do, we have to help each other remember God's goodness and faithfulness. Like, can I ask a really pointed question? When's the last time you've celebrated the transforming power of Jesus Christ in your spouse? When's the last time you looked and said, hey baby, when we first started dating or when we first got married, you, you struggled with this or were weak in this, but man, God has grown you and you've had so much victory in this and you're different. And it's such a cool picture of how God is loving you and that you are a follower of his and he's transforming your life. When's the last time you've taken the time to say, honey, I see this in you. God is changing your life and it's so cool to be a part of. When's the last time you've said that to your kids? When's the last time you've said that to one of your friends? who just needs the encouragement. We've got to be committed to celebrating the wins. And then here's the third. I know my, my salvation um, is real and evidence is my faith is marked by boldness. My faith is marked by boldness. Romans 1.16 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And I was thinking this week, what was the big difference between Peter when he bailed on Jesus, when Jesus was going through his trial in Acts 4. What made the difference in Peter's life? And I think I know what the key is. Look at verse eight. It says this. It says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that's the whole key right there. You see, before when Jesus was under trial, he didn't have the Spirit of God. Peter didn't. So, so when the heat rose, when the temperature rose, he fell into fear, his faith was overwhelmed and he bailed. But it says in that moment, when, when Peter's under fire in Acts 4, it says he is filled with the spirit and then he speaks boldly for Christ. One of the things the Holy Spirit does, church, is it gives us the power to live boldly for Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul writes, for God gave us the spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now here's the question, are we all called to be preachers and, and preach? Well, I hope not or else I'm out of a job, right? That would be a bummer for me. I don't, I don't think we are. Um, but here's a question, are we all called to live boldly for Christ in our spheres of influence? Absolutely we are. That when people look at your life, when, when, when your friends and coworkers and family, when they think about you, there has to be a man, this kid or this guy or this gal is sold out for Jesus. He sincerely believes that Jesus is Lord. He takes his faith seriously. He acts in a way that shows that his life, he doesn't do what he wants to do. He tries to honor the Lord in how he talks and what he pursues and how he spends his time and how he spends his money. There is a life that is bold and sold out for Christ. That's a, a, a responsibility that all of us share. 
Like I come here and I preach, but then I go to my son's soccer game and I carry the responsibility that I represent Christ boldly in how I interact with the parents, in how I cheer for my son, in how I engage in that sphere of influence. God's given us all spheres of influences. There has to be a selling out to our new identity. All right, so look at how the passage wraps up. Look at verse 13. I think this is so cool. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, there's that word, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Do you see see how arrogant the religious leaders are? It's like, oh, you commoners, how can you be saying these things? It says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them. It is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. Okay, do you see the religious leaders problem? They wanna get rid of Peter and John, but they can't deny the power of God in the transformed life of the crippled man. And they're like, we can't get rid of them because everyone saw what God did through them. So they don't believe in Jesus. They don't like Peter and John, but guess what they can't argue with? They can't argue with the power of God to change and transform lives. And that leads me to my big idea this morning. It's this, it's that it's really difficult to argue with a transformed life. It's really difficult to argue with a transformed life. And I would argue this all day long that the greatest quiver in your, uh, or greatest arrow in your quiver to be an effective witness for Christ is to tell the story of how he's changed you in your life, right? You can argue worldviews with people. You can argue theology with people. You can have all of those debates, but what no one can argue with is, this is how God has changed me. I used to be this, now I'm that. My marriage was here, now it's here. And that can only be credited to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life because I'm not good enough or smart enough to figure it out. Uh, I have a, a friend, a guy in my small group who started coming to Harvest and their marriage was just in a really bad spot. And they came through soul care. Their, their marriage was restored and healed. And the cool thing is, is now three or four years later, he still runs with a lot of the same crew that he ran when his marriage was very, very different than it is now. And all of his friends are like, dude, I don't understand you. They're like, I don't believe what you believe. I'm not sold out on this Jesus thing. I don't believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. But what drives me crazy is, man, I wish I had the peace and joy and marriage that you have. And he's like, dude, you need the Holy Spirit. (laughs) You need to repent. You need to confess your sins. You need to give your life to Christ because that's the only hope you have for salvation. It's the greatest platform for him to be a witness for Christ. It's very, very difficult to argue with a transformed life. So with that at kind of the front of our mind, what I want you to do is I want you to celebrate with us a life that's been transformed uh, here at Harvest recently. Check out this video. When I first met John, it was when I was living in Grand Rapids. It's not my own. I had faith in the Lord, but I wasn't really living it out completely. Kind of put on the back burner for the time being while I was there. You know, you hear in the movies, like you see the other person across the room. In that moment that we met, you could just feel that something was different. There's just something different about him that I really was kind of drawn to. And 
From there, we kind of started hanging out and seeing each other. It just kind of started to grow into something more. I fought it a little bit, didn't really want a relationship. We started dating and hanging out more. I kind of did some self-reflection at that point where I was like, I'm living my life right now and I'm getting into this relationship where I could see myself maybe getting married someday now. It made me think about my relationship with God and what that would look like in marriage as well. That's when it flipped for me and that's something that I really wanted to work on my relationship with God and I wanted that to be a central focus in my marriage. We sat down one day and she's like, hey, out of a husband, I want somebody that's a believer. I want somebody that's gonna lead me. And I basically told her, I'm never gonna believe in God. From there, it kind of hit me hard because I did start to like him quite a bit but I knew that for me personally moving forward with my relationship with God, that I couldn't move forward in a relationship with John, so we broke things off. The drinking, the drugs, and the sex is where I was at and what I lived my life for. I was addicted to like my own self-desire, and it was ruining me, and I didn't even know it was ruining me. And then, uh, lo and behold, one of my one of my good friends, he actually started going to church and was inviting me to go. So I started going to church with him. Went there a couple times, and God, how God is, just just was running after me hard, and I didn't even know it. A couple months down the road. I kind of noticed that John was going to church with his friends and reached out to me after that. And we got back together at that point and started going to church together. And I noticed a change in him. So I thought, let's give this a shot. Like, let's see where this leads. At that point though, like I was still wrestling with so many demons and just putting on a fake facade to everybody around me. We got plugged into Harvest and we had to make the decision, this is our home church and we're gonna get plugged in in this church. We signed up for a small group and we got put in the Cook's small group. It was good for us because we got insight into what marriage should be. My facade just honestly continued though. like. It just continued through that whole small group process. I was pursuing other relationships on like Snapchat. I was partying and going out. I was like, you know what? Like this is the girl I want to marry. So I proposed. Once we got engaged, that was the that was the point where I really said, you know, I need to take this God thing serious. Up until that point, I really was trying to do things under my own strength. And then that's when all of my sin that I had been hiding came to the light. A girl that I had cheated on Cassidy with reached out to her and was like, hey, I slept with your fiance like six months ago. I found out things that John had done before we got engaged. It was all brought to light to me, like floodgates just opened up like thing after thing. It rocked me pretty hard because here I am getting engaged. What was supposed to be the most like happy time <laughs> in a relationship and it ended up being the most scary of your full times for me because I didn't know what the future held for us. I saw John and I saw the changes he was making and it was good. And then to be brought back to times where it wasn't good, I don't know, it just was a really weird um, 
hard thing for me to go through. I really felt alone because I didn't know what to do. It made me really reach out and cry out to God and to really just put my faith and trust in Him and grasp onto Him. And through that, He brought me people who could help us. We started doing soul care. Casty was trying to decide, like, do I even want this relationship anymore? I can just remember going into that first soul care meeting just like I had walls built up around my heart and had made up my, my mind when I went in there that I was just going to still continue to deny everything and just try and manipulate people. God just kept chasing me and eventually was breaking those walls down. And I can remember the second, the second soul care meeting we went into, I was just completely broken just from all of my sin. And I had a conversation with Dan. He said that I needed to just confess everything to Cassidy. Whatever there was to confess, I just needed to confess any, any sins against her or God. That's what I did. Christy asked me one question. She was like, Cassidy, do you see a change in John? And I'm like, yes, I do. I see that. And I had chose at that point to keep moving forward with it because I believed in what God could do in his life. At that point, the grace that Cassidy showed me was so astounding, honestly. I just couldn't understand how a person could be hurt so badly and still continue to show grace. And I think that that's just a good picture of what who our God is and a little snippet of the amount of grace that he has for all of us. It made me realize, like, who am I to judge somebody else for their sins? Every sin is the same at the foot of the cross. While it may hurt a lot and there might be sin that hurts you more than others, like his sin is no different than mine. If God can forgive my sins, if I'm called to be like Christ, like I'm called to forgive. We got married and my sins were all known to Cassidy. Allowed our marriage to be built upon the rock, upon a solid foundation. And without that foundation, I don't know where we would be at right now. Since we've gotten married, he's been such a strong um, leader for us um, spiritually and always pointing me back to Christ and like really just has shown that relationship with Christ and led our family in that. Seeing how God worked through those situations, that is what we're thankful for, that God pulled us out of um, those hard times, just thankful that God brought us out of that. And, yeah, brought us both to like a, a flourishing, fruitful, real relationship with him. It's cool, isn't it? And um, church, here's what I want you to see. That the same power that was present in Acts 3, that changed the heart of Peter, that caused a man who had not been able to walk his whole life to be miraculously healed, that same power is still present in us today. God is still just as engaged. He is just leaning into us as much as I asked you to just a little bit ago. That's God's disposition towards us. He's leaning in. He wants to transform. He wants to save. And, and it's a miracle when a guy like John who would openly say, I'm never gonna trust the Lord. And my life is going to be defined by what I can get away with and what I can hide in secret sin is so moved by the gospel 
that he confesses and comes clean and his heart is transformed and is now a life that is marked by honesty and humility and service. And man, him and Cassidy are such a blessing to our church in so many ways. And um, so thankful for their story. But what I wanna say is, is like, does your life mirror that? Might not be as dramatic, might not be a story that would be shown to everyone, but I think all of our stories need to have an element of, man, God is changing me and transforming me and moving in my life and making me more like Jesus. Can you honestly, when you look at those evidences of a life that is saved, can you say, man, I fall into those categories? And I think for many of us, this message is just a um, encouraging reassurance of the work that God has done in our hearts and is continuing to do, amen? But there's some of you in here who um, you're not feeling reassured. You're not feeling joyful. You feel terrified because you're like, man, when I engage in my heart and in why I engage in why I do what I do and who I'm living for, um, my life doesn't live up to what scripture says a saved life looks like. Have you truly put all of your hope and your identity and your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't, right now is that moment. You can come before the Lord right now and enter into relationship with him. And it's God, I believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that he did what your word said he did. And now I am living my life in a way where I am no longer on the throne, but all glory and praise and honor will go to Jesus. That's what we want for you. If you need to pray with someone, if you need to talk to a pastor, don't leave here without being sure. Let's do this, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, this time. I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for the gift of salvation. Man, we don't deserve that. Man, every day do we disqualify ourselves from your love when we seek to live for ourselves and make ourselves the star of the show and live for our glory. But you are patient, you are gracious, you are kind. You continue to lean in and pursue us and engage with us. God, I'm thankful for the story of transformation, both in the book of Acts and what we get to see in the life of this church, God. And that is just one of many stories where you are saving and transforming and changing lives. God, you are so good. May we live with eyes that are focused on what you're doing. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.